Hello and welcome to the China Path podcast. James Scullin here from the Australia China Business Council. Thanks for listening, and I hope you've already subscribed to our podcast on the iTunes Store to receive a free episode on Australia China business matters each fortnight. In 2016 to 2017, Australian exports increased 25% to a record 110 billion dollars, and it's hard to argue that Chafta, the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, has not played a significant role in this growth. Today's episode is specifically for current exporters or those wishing to export to China. As I sit down with Collins Rex from the Export Council of Australia to discuss how to access Chafta. We discuss how gains from Chafta are not automatic, and there are four distinct steps businesses must follow to ensure their tariffs are reduced under Chafta. Collins also outlines the benefits for the services sector. Collins Rex has over 25 years general management, marketing, and communications experience. Passionate about getting more Australian organisations, particularly SMEs, doing better business and onto the global stage, Collins has extensively worked with the Australian government, industry clusters, and SMEs. Collins has been responsible for the development and delivery of training courses across a range of topics, including export readiness, pitching presentation, and free trade agreements for the Export Council of Australia. She's also managed and delivered a number of major projects for the ECA, including the Australia Rewards Women Trading Globally program and the development of content for ANZ's Be Trade Ready website, betraderready.com. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here with Collins Rex at the Export Council of Australia. Thanks for joining me today, Collins. It's a pleasure, James.、Um, so we're going to talk about how exactly businesses can access Chafta. So first, Collins, I'd like to start by asking you a very general question: What is a free trade agreement, and how do countries benefit from them? Well, I think、um, we probably need to start with what a free trade agreement is not, James.、Mm. Um, first of all, it's very important to note that a free trade agreement is not an agreement between companies, or an agreement between governments and companies, or individuals and companies. Free trade agreements are not sales agreements as such.、Mm. So, a free trade agreement is a government-to-government agreement. It's essentially a contract between governments that. Make clear certain rules and parameters around trade between those countries. It usually centres around the reduction of tariffs,、mm. so the reduction of duties payable on goods exported to a specific country and between those two countries. And it also addresses certain other areas, such as, for example, market access,、um, services access, for example. Ease of doing business, government to government, etc.、Mm. Um, but it is a high-level agreement. It's absolutely government to government, and it in no way negates the need for individual companies to have agreements with their customers. Do businesses take up free trade agreements、um, to a high degree? Is there a high percentage of take up, or are they generally un- underutilized? The reality is that they're actually very underutilized,、mm. and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, first of all, many companies don't know that free trade agreements exist,、yep. and if they do, they download the text,、um, and the average free trade agreement, and Chafta being a case in point, runs to about eight hundred pages, which for most business people, particularly small businesses,、sure. is 
quite daunting. Yeah. And by the time you've ploughed through the first 150 pages of legalese, yeah. um, many companies just decide this is too hard before they even get to the benefits component of okay. it. Um, so that's the main reason. It's just complicated. And instead of just breaking it down into the basic components, companies tend to want to start at the beginning and work their way through. So yes, the uptake is low, but when companies do actually make the effort to find out what is involved in the free trade agreement and the benefits to them, yeah. they find that it does actually open a lot of doors mm. to trade in, in the other country. Mm. Okay, great. So let's talk about CHAFTA. Um, how does it compare to Australia's other current free trade agreements? Well, CHAFTA is a very significant trade agreement. First of all, it took 10 years to negotiate. Um, you don't work on something for that long without it right. being fairly significant by the end of it. Yeah. Um, I guess important to note that CHAFTA is one of 10 free trade agreements that Australia has. Okay. So um, Australia has 10 free trade agreements, the first of which was with New Zealand. Um, there are various others in negotiation stages now. Um, so CHAFTA came into power in December 2015. Yep. So we got the first tranche of benefits, the first tranche of tariff cuts um, at the end of December when the agreement came into place. Yep. And then the next tranche of agreement um, benefits came into being on the 1st of January 2016. Right. Okay. So we effectively got two for one. Um, so that signing date was actually fairly significant because okay. it does mean that every year that we get to the end of the year, we're getting a second year of benefits almost immediately, right. um, which is really significant. Um, in terms of how CHAFTA compares to Australia's other trade agreements, very important to note that under CHAFTA, Australia has most favoured nation status. Okay. And that is pretty significant because that means in essence that if China enters into agreements with another nation after they've entered into CHAFTA, every benefit that nation gets that might be more significant or better than we have then brings us back to the table with CHAFTA so that our benefits are sort of adjusted accordingly. Right. So we will keep pace with any agreement signed after CHAFTA. Okay, and does, so does that apply to multilateral agreements as well? Like if China was to enter like a regional economic partnership in Asia, the um, most favoured nation status would still apply? Yes. So our most favoured nation status will apply. Of course, China can now enter into most favoured nation status. With others, mm. that doesn't stop them doing that. But still, our agreement needs to keep pace. Right. Um, regional agreements, of course, are very complex because... There might be bilateral agreements in place that are then superseded by regional agreements, etc. Yep. But technically, our most favoured nation status remains irrespective of who that agreement is with mm. going forward. It's not retrospective, though, and that is very important to note. Okay. So any agreements that were in place before CHAFTA, well, they get what they get. Yep. Um, and one of the nations that we always tend to look to for the benefits that they receive is New Zealand okay. because we compete on a number of different fronts, sure. particularly in the agriculture space. Yeah. Um, so, yes, if they've got a better tariff than we do in a certain agricultural area, that remains. Mm. Um, ours is not adjusted. If, however, another nation enters into agreement that might be a competitor of ours, yeah. we will get the same benefit that they do. And at full implementation, 95% of Australian export goods will be tariff-free to China. So, Collins, what, what sectors are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about a number of sectors, James. I think um, if we're looking at the fact that 95% of all goods will be tariff-free, yeah. 
Um, clearly, there are 5% of goods that will not be tariff-free, and those goods cut across a number of different sectors. But if we look at where the tariffs will go down, yeah. um, significant sectors for Australia, dairy, for example, um, where as much as 20% of tariffs will disappear, beef, which steps down over time, and again, up to 25% will be tariff-free. Wine, we're losing as much as 25% of tariffs. So it does step down over time, though. So I think it is important to mm. note that at signing, um, the tariff reduction might have been minor in some sectors, yep. but over time that tariff reduction is significant. So butter, for example, steps down over a period of 10 years, okay. and over those 10 years it goes down to zero. So it goes from 10%, which is the standard tariff on right. all butter entering China, yep. to 0% at the end of those 10 years. Okay. And again, it's very important to understand the significance of that stepping down over time. Um, for an Australian company, it might not make a sound business case to go into China exporting a good um, like butter, for example, at 10 or 9 or 8% of tariff. But it might start making sense at 5%. Right. So okay. for a company then to look at where that tariff reduction enters and when it makes sense commercially for them, it means that they can prepare. Okay, yeah. So today, when the reduction might not be significant enough for you, but you know in two years' time it will be, today you can start getting those relationships sorted out, you can start lining up your customers, you can get your production sorted out so that when the right tariff is on the table, you're ready to supply mm. at the right price. Yeah, so you really have the opportunity to, to plan in the long term of how your product can get into China. Absolutely. Okay, so I think um, what, one of the misconceptions about FTAs is that um, businesses um, access them automatically. So once the countries sign the agreement, um, those businesses that are exporting um, to the, uh, the country under the agreement will have their um, tariffs reduced. Um, but this is not the case. Businesses need to follow particular guidelines in order to access the benefits of an FTA. So, Collins, we're going to discuss the, the four steps of accessing an FTA, such as CHAFTA. Um, so, what would you say the first step for exporters is? Well, it isn't automatic, absolutely, um, if you don't actually ask for the tariff reduction when the goods enter China, you will pay the standard tariff. Okay. So, important to note. So, the first step in actually making use of CHAFTA is in correctly classifying your goods. Okay. Um, and here we are talking about physical goods as opposed to services. We'll get on to services later. But yep. physical goods, every single thing in the entire world has a number that denotes what that good is. We call it an HS code, yep. um, which is the harmonised system of classification. And this is a system that was put in place by the World Customs Organisation. So every nation in the world recognises the same system. And it just makes it a lot easier than writing lengthy descriptions of what a good is. Right. So the harmonised system um, is a very simple system of numbers, okay. essentially, that at their simplest form, in their simplest form at the, the most basic level, consists of six digits. Okay. The first digits denote the chapter in the harmonised system, the next two the heading, and the next two the subheading. Okay. So if we look at an example, um, chapters, for example, 
there are only 97 of them. So every single good in the world fits into 97 chapters. Right. Um, zero, one is live animals. Okay. And 97 is antiques, works of art. Right. Okay. Things of that nature. And in between you have everything else. Um, so if we look at something like beef, for example, um, clearly it might start its life as a, as a live animal. Um, so if we're exporting animals and we're exporting animals that are beef, they would start as a live animal. Mm. But that clearly doesn't say too much about what it is because sure. a live animal could be a dog. Yeah. Um, we then need to find the heading, which denotes beef, yep. and the fact that this is a cow, it's a, it's a bovine animal. Okay. And then we need to go a little bit further because that bovine animal could be exported for purposes of eating, but it could also be exported for purposes of breeding, etc. So the next two digits are then going to tell us whether it's an eating animal, it's a breeding animal, and so forth. Okay. So that, at its simplest form, is what those HS codes are. So you've got six letters yep. that denote a specific thing. And so how can an exporter know what particular HS code applies to their product? There are a number of ways. You could go to the World Customs Organization and you could do a search. Yep. Um, so in the first instance, you could download those 97 chapters. Yep. But as I say, those are broad. Okay, um, sure. But we are very fortunate in Australia in that we have um, the, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade have put together a portal, an FTA portal, where you can go, and if you really don't know what your HS code is, you can type in a description of your good. Okay. So you can type in uh, leather sandals, for example, yep. and it will spit out at the other end the HS code that right. pertains to that good. Okay. Um, the great thing about the FTA portal is if you state where it is you're going to be exporting your leather sandals to, it will also tell you all the other rules and regulations around that HS code once it's given it to you in the area that you're going to be exporting it to. So you type in China, leather sandals, and it will also tell you not only the HS code, but the tariffs that relate to that HF code, how it's dealt with under chapter, and any other specific rules and regulations under chapter. Right, so, this, so that comes on to our second step of understanding how a business knows how their goods are treated under chapter. So for a business to understand the tariff schedule of their product and how that tariff is reduced over time, um, is is the DFAT portal the best place for them to go? The DFAT portal is the best place to go. Um, you can look it up. So the the actual letter of chapter, yep. if you download the agreement, that several hundred page agreement, the majority of that agreement is in fact made up of tariff tables. Okay. And those tariff tables, that's the tariff schedule under chapter that will show you exactly how that good and that HS code is treated, how the tariff steps down over time, etc. But that is complicated. You have to find it. Yep. Um, whereas if you go to the DFAT portal, you will see at a glance pretty much how that's treated. Now, there are other mechanisms to look that up. Um, for example, there is the Be Trade Ready website um, that the Export Council developed in conjunction with ANZ. Yep. And it's easy enough. If you just Google Be Trade Ready, you'll come up with that site. And that will give you, for 16 industry sectors, and, and very important note, only 16 industry sectors, but it will give you similar information. It will also then give you some comparative information to see how our tariffs compare to those 
agreements that China has in place with other nations. Oh, right. Okay, because China may have a free trade agreement with another country where that product that you're exporting to China will also have a reducing tariff. So it's important to understand that, you know, obviously doing business with China is of a very competitive nature and China has free trade agreements with other countries and the Be Trade Ready application really lets you follow how your product is working in the China market compared to other exporters. Yes, which means you can make a more informed decision about whether this is the right time for you to be exporting, for example, your butter to China, or whether you need to be waiting a while longer until the tariff steps down, or indeed whether it's going to make sense for you to ever export your your butter because maybe there's an agreement in place that is always going to be better than ours. Sure, okay, excellent. Okay, so moving on to step three now. Chapter is essentially for Australian goods being exported to China. How can a business prove that their goods come from Australia? What, What types of products classify? So step one, you've got your right HS code, so you know what your good is. Step two, you know how your good is treated under CHAFTA and what the tariffs are. Step three, you actually have to prove that your goods originate in Australia because, well, kind of a no-brainer really. If they don't originate here, then you don't qualify for the benefits. Um, So really, you need, all goods can qualify for originating status. Um, irrespective of what they are, whether they are goods that are manufactured in Australia, whether they're goods that are grown in Australia, goods that are dug out of the ground in Australia, any good could potentially classify for Australian origin status. But there are a few things that um, that come into play. There are essentially three main rules of origin. The first one is that the good is wholly obtained in Australia. Right. Now, the only goods that can be wholly obtained are single goods, so they are only one thing. They're not made up of other things. Okay. And those are generally things that are grown, dug out of the ground, or born in Australia. Right. So um, an apple grown in Australia is a wholly obtained good. It is a single thing. It is an apple. It's not made up of a component, you know, a number of components. Yep. Um, it grew on an Australian tree in Australian soil. It's an Australian apple. It is a wholly obtained good. Okay. Um, a cow, for example, that was born in Australia ate Australian grass, did what it did on Australian soil, is a wholly obtained good. And it remains that irrespective of what you do to it. So if you take that cow and you slaughter it and you cut it into pieces and you sell the pieces, those pieces of meat are still wholly obtained. Okay, right. As someone pointed out to me recently, though, I should stop calling them cows because we do not eat cows. (laughs) Oh, right, of course. Uh, We eat the boys. Anyway, (laughs) that's neither here nor there. So that's a wholly obtained good. Um, That's the easiest rule to prove, generally. Yeah, and so uh, predominantly for ag products? Predominantly ag, minerals, energy. So you dig it out the ground, you grow it here. It's it's obviously a wholly obtained good. It's easy to prove. Sure. Um, The second rule gets a little bit more difficult to prove, um, and that is simply because it's got more areas that could be a little bit grey. The second rule states essentially that if a good is made in Australia from all Australian originating components, it satisfies the rule of origin. Okay. So um, if we look at the example of of our beef, um, clearly the beef is Australian origin because it's wholly obtained. Now, if we take that beef and we do stuff to it and we transform it into something else, so let's, for example, say we make a meat pie. Yeah. If that meat pie is baked in Australia from components such as the beef, the flour that makes the pastry, the butter that goes into the pastry and the sauce, 
the salt, the herbs, yep. etc. We bake all of that into a pie in Australia and we sell that pie. That good would be originating in Australia because all the components come from Australia and right. we can individually prove that each one of those goods comes from Australia. Okay. The third component of rules of origin, the third rule is where it starts getting really interesting because the third rule states that if a good is made in Australia from components originating elsewhere, mm. provided those components have been materially transformed, that good can still be considered Australian. Right. So if we look at the same example of the meat pie, yeah. you make the meat pie in Australia, but you import the flour from the United States. Um, the beef comes from Australia, but you might get the butter from New Zealand. You might get the salt from, oh, I don't know, Kazakhstan. You then turn all of those things into sauce, into pastry, put it all together as a meat pie, bake it and sell the meat pie. Okay. The meat pie would still be originating in Australia, provided that all the individual components are not exported as individual components, but as something completely new. Right. What that essentially means, we talked earlier on about the HS code yep. and those six digits that make up the different components, to satisfy the rule of origin number three, you need to have done something that changes the HS code from what it was when it entered the country into something different when it leaves the country. Okay, so as the transformation, if the transformation takes place within Australia, it becomes an Australian product. Yes, it does. So, so would you say that even if, if we're making this meat pie with wholly uh, imported goods from foreign countries, if that meat pie is assembled and transformed within Australia, that will become an Australian product. It can still be an Australian product because what you are exporting is not those individual components. Okay. If, however, what you are exporting is essentially a meat pie in kit form yeah. because you're exporting a bag of flour, um, pieces of beef and little bags of salt and herbs and whatever with a recipe attached and you're sending that to China saying this is how you make a meat pie. Yeah that would not be originating okay. in Australia. So that leads us to step four. So once we have um, determined whether our product classifies as an Australian product, how can we prove this? Um, because we need to prove this to Chinese authorities who are importing this good. Um, so, Collins, what, like, what type of documentation does an exporter need to prove that their good comes from Australia? So you've done everything to prove that your good originates in Australia. Of course, that's of no use until you have the piece of paper that says that it does. Yep. And that piece of paper is called a certificate of origin. Okay. Um, certificate of origin is obtained from a, a few different sources, the major one being um, your local chamber of commerce and industry. Okay. So, for example, in Victoria, that would be Vecchi. Yep. It's the chambers that reside under the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Okay. That's where you go for your yep. certificate of origin. Um, there's another way you can get your certificate of origin. You can get it from the Australian Industry Group. AIG, yeah. AIG. And both of those, if you go to, to any one of the websites and you just type in certificate of origin for those organisations, it'll take you straight to the page where you do it. Okay. Um, there is... For the exporters of wine, there is a third one, um, and that's the, the Wine and Grape Authority. Okay. So they can also issue certificates of origin for wine. You are going to have satisfied the rule of origin for yourself. You're going to know which rule you're applying. You then get a form which you complete. Yep. 
And that form has a number of different components to it. Um, you know, you're going to obviously the details of the goods, etc., the HS code, all of that sort of stuff. You're also going to complete which rule of origin you have applied. Okay. Um, you then take that form and you submit it to the AI group or to the local chamber, and they will then issue that form as your certificate of origin. Okay. That effectively gets signed, sealed, delivered, and comes back to you and becomes your certificate of origin. Now, if it's an easy rule that you've applied, so the wholly obtained good, for example, generally they're just going to sign that, stamp it, and get it back to you. Okay. Yep. Um, if, however, it's rule number three, they may very well come back and want to know more details about the process that you've applied. In some cases, they will even inspect your factory, oh, etc., right. okay. to make sure that what you've said you've done, you actually do. Yep. And then they will issue the certificate of origin. Now, it is important to note that you need a certificate of origin for every single shipment of that particular good. Right, okay. You don't just have one and it's now a blanket one, so yep. you need to apply for a new one every single time you ship that good. And if you make any changes to the good, you have to go through the process all over and again. And reapply, okay. Then you can't just say, well, this is the same one that I got last time, so can you just reissue it to uh, me? Okay. And there is a charge for every single certificate of origin. It's not a huge charge, but there is a charge. And as I say, it has to go with every single shipment of the good. Now, generally, the certificate of origin will accompany the goods. Yep. So as long with all the other documents that you're going to send, your all your shipping documents, your commercial invoice, etc., you will also send your certificate of origin. Yeah. You can send the certificate of origin once the goods have left Australia, but the certificate of origin needs to arrive in China at the same time as the goods. So communication is obviously very important with your, your Chinese partner. Is it correct to say that they are applying, like they are using your certificate of origin to say to Chinese customs, these goods that I'm importing from Australia are Australian and here's my proof of that? Yes. So the the tariff benefit does not accrue to you as the exporter. Yeah. The tariff benefit accrues to the buyer. Okay. So the buyer is the, the person that would be paying the duty when the goods arrive in China. Yeah. The buyer, therefore, is going to be paying the reduced duty if they apply chapter. And the way that they do that is by going to Chinese customs and saying, this shipment of goods have come from Australia Here's the necessary paperwork included in the certificate of origin that proves this good should not be taxed at the tan standard duty rate, yep. but at the reduced one under the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. And this is the good that I'm showing you. This is the piece of paper, and this is the tariff that I will be paying. Okay. So that example of the butter, for example, all butter exported to China attracts a duty of 10%, okay. unless there's a free trade agreement. Right. So your buyer would be paying 10% duty unless they have the certificate of origin from you that allows them the lower rate. Does the certificate of origin need to be translated into Chinese if used at Chinese it, customs? It doesn't have to be, no. Okay. It can be in English. Okay. What other types of hurdles are there, Collins, that businesses need to think about when accessing Chapter? Well, we use that magical term non-tariff barriers. Okay. Um, so much as Chapter will address the barriers that relate to tariffs on a number of different goods, and we talked about the fact that at full implementation, 95% of goods will be tariff-free. Um, so tariffs are clearly addressed under CHAFTA, but CHAFTA cannot 
just as no free trade agreement can address every single aspect of doing business in a country. Yeah. So the same rules and regulations that would apply to you doing business in any country apply to you doing business in China. Okay. Um, so as an Australian business, you need to make a sound commercial decision when you attempt to do business in China. You don't do business in China just because there is a free trade agreement. Yeah. Um, there needs to be a commercial imperative in the first instance. But some of those non-tariff barriers could relate, for example, to documentation that could be quite onerous. There are licences, there are um, specifications that need to be met, there's certification that needs to be done on products, um, and some products are a lot more complicated than others. Okay. So if, for example, you are exporting um, medicaments or cosmetics, there are substantial substantial things that have to happen before those goods will be accepted into China. Okay. Um, and it really doesn't matter how you've tested them in Australia, all the, the pieces of paper you might have here to certify that the goods are safe, you're still going to have to go through all of those things again in China. Also important to note while we're talking about cosmetics, um, there's a very interesting rule in China. Um, the rule in China is that all cosmetics need to have been tested on animals. Oh, okay. um, whereas, of course, we pride ourselves on not doing animal testing. So that is a very substantial entry barrier. Right. Because clearly we're not going to start testing goods on animals just to get them into China. Sure. So those are things you need to think about and how you're going to do that. Okay. So there's all that certification stuff. Of course, there are all the, the impediments to setting up a business, to repatriating funds, to trading in the local currency, foreign exchange rules, etc. So those are all things... Um, there is a checklist that um, people can download from the ECA website yep. that will give you a, a really good measure of all the areas you need to consider and all the potential non-tariff barriers that you're going to come across. Mm. Um, but it is important to take them all into account rather than just look at the tariff on your good and say, well, it's going down from 25% to zero, therefore it's going to be easy to do business. It's not necessarily so. What about the services sector, Collins? What is the what what does Chafter offer those in services? Well, the great thing about Chafter is that it does actually do a lot for Australian services companies. Yeah. Um, because it gives us access that we really haven't had to date, and that very few nations have. So there are specific areas um, that are affected by Chafter and that are addressed by Chafter. Um, legal services, for example, education services, financial services, telecommunication, tourism, health and aged care, and a raft of others. Mm. Um, I think important to just touch on a few of the key areas where Australia benefits, yep. um, and that particularly compared to other nations and what they are able to and not able to do in China. Mm. So, for example, if we look at financial services providers, so we're talking about banks, insurers, security firms and the like, yep. they've got much greater access to the Chinese market. So under CHAFTA, our financial services providers can establish joint venture future companies in China and they can own up to 49% of those businesses, which is unprecedented in China. Right. No other foreign entity can own that much. Also very important to note that our insurance providers have access to the statutory third-party liability motor vehicle insurance market in China. Okay. Now, 
if you think about the fact that China has close to 1.4 billion people, many of those people drive motor cars, they all have to have third-party motor insurance, um, we can actually sell them that insurance. Right, okay. And that is unique, yeah. again, okay. to Australia. Sure. Um, our tourism providers can not only sell tourism services, which a number of other nations can, but we can also invest in construction and operation of hotels and restaurants in China. Okay. And that, again, is a massive benefit for us. Healthcare providers can actually establish and operate wholly owned hospitals and aged care facilities in China. Mm. And that is massive. Yeah. Now, you may ask, why has China done that? Why have they given that sort of access to Australian companies? Well, quite simply, it's because they need us. Yeah. Um, the whole community setup in China is changing substantially as time goes by. There used to be a time when Chinese families looked after their aged themselves. They yep. kept them in the family and they cared for them there. That is changing and they can't do that anymore. So they need aged care facilities and they don't have the ability to provide all of that themselves. China has looked to Australia as a leader in that field and said, come in and help. Mm. So they've given us the access. Our law firms, for example, have guaranteed access provided they set up in the Shanghai Free Trade Zone. Yep. Um, and the key benefit there and the key difference between Australian law firms and other foreign law firms is that Australian law firms in the Shanghai Free Trade Zone can provide a full service. Okay. The way that it normally works in China is that if you're a law firm, you set up shop in China, you are allowed to do that, um, you're allowed to provide services, but you are only allowed to advise on the law of your own country, not Chinese law, mm. whereas Australian law firms can do both, oh, right. provided okay. they're in the Shanghai Free Trade Zone, which yeah. of course is a major benefit for mm. us. Um, our telecommunications providers can provide certain services, again in the Shanghai Free Trade Zone, and Telecommunications is a very tightly sewn up area in, in China, but we can play in certain parts of that that others cannot. Yep. Um, higher education, of course, is a major service provider from Australia. Um, our universities benefit enormously from, from Chinese students. Um, we are listed on the very important website, um, and it's a really long one, um, but you know there is a website which is where all the Chinese students go to to find their providers, mm. their tertiary providers. And we have a number of institutions listed on there. And as of the beginning of this year, we've had a further 77 that have been allowed. Okay. So we have a substantial number of our providers listed on that site, which is a major benefit. Finally, Collins, um, if businesses require any further information, I know we've discussed the, the B Trade Ready application. Um, we've also talked about the DFAT FTA portal. Um, are there any other online resources or places to go for businesses to find out more about free trade agreements and Chafter in particular? There certainly are, James, and I think um, just important to point out that the DFAT portal um, is the FTA portal.dfat.gov.au. Okay. But if you just Google DFAT portal, yep. um, you'll generally get there. Sure. Um, the ANZ Be Trade Ready website is betraderady.anz.com. It's not a www, this one. It's just betraderady.anz.com. Um, but there are also some very important resources available through DFAT itself. So the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has a China desk. Um, there's a, a, an email address. If you've got any queries regarding chapter and how it applies, it's chinafta at dfat.gov.au. And similarly, the Department of Immigration and Border Protection 
um, which of course is where customs resides, also has a China portal. Okay. Um, and there it's chapter at border.gov.au for any queries that you might have. Yep. And if you go to the DFAT website or the border.gov.au website and you type in China, it'll also take you to the specific area of the site that relates. Um, and that's where you can get those questions around certificates of origins and so forth um, answered for you. Um, the Export Council of Australia, um, which is export.org.au, almost forgot my own web address there, <laughs> um, also has some really important resources and information that you can get to. Yep. Um, in terms of going to the other side of the equation and you want to get the information specifically from China, so if you want to know about things like advanced rulings, and mm. we haven't really talked about the advanced ruling, but essentially... If you're not sure about the classification of your good or how your good will be treated under chapter, you can send that good to China okay. and Chinese customs will look at it. They will make a determination as to what the correct HS code is to apply okay. and they will then give you a ruling which is called an advanced ruling about that HS code. Similarly, you can get an advanced ruling about whether the good originates in Australia. Okay. Once you have the advanced ruling, you then don't need a certificate of origin. You can simply quote the advanced ruling. Um, that you're going to get from Chinese customs. Okay. And there is an English Chinese customs website, english.customs.gov.cn, where you can get all of that sort of information. And then also the Chinese Ministry of Commerce has an FTA network but the Chinese Ministry of Commerce is also where you're going to go to get some of those non-tariff barrier rules and regulations clarified mm. around things like getting your specific goods certified in China. Okay, excellent. All right, well, thanks a lot for joining me today, Collins. Um, as we talked about at the beginning, the chapter agreement itself is in excess of 100 pages. So I hope that we've uh, simplified that and made it a little accessible to businesses in understanding how exactly they can access Chapter and how it can benefit them. Thanks, James. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to Collins for helping to unpack Chapter and thanks also to the Australian Trade and Investment Commission for their support of this podcast. If you're looking for links to either the Be Trade Ready website or the FTA portal that Collins mentioned, they're all available under this episode's show notes that can be found at www.acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. If the information in this episode may be of use to a friend or business colleague, please don't hesitate in passing it on. Until next time, Zai Jian.